missional living because we believe, we value living out the love of Jesus Christ, believing that it will compel the spiritually lost to follow him. Living out the love of Christ because we believe that when we do that, it will compel the spiritually lost to follow him. And um, we talked quite a bit about missional living back in November. You guys, some of you were here for uh, Missions Month. We talked quite a bit about that. And so this morning, uh, some of what I'm going to be sharing might be a little familiar to you if you were here then. Some of you, if you weren't here, uh, this whole thing might be very new. One of the things that we said over and over and over back in November is that those who follow Christ, believers, Christians, must be missions-minded. Missions must be on our mind. What I'm, what I'm trying to say when I say missions-minded is that there needs to be an awareness of the depravity around us. And when I say depravity, I'm talking about the corruption, I'm talking about the perversion uh, the wickedness, I think, if we're in tune with the Lord at all, we can sense those things in our culture, uh, in, our, in our workplaces and whatever. Just a lot of depravity, a lot of perversion, a lot of wickedness. And so being missions-minded is being aware of that depravity, but it's also being aware of the mandate upon our lives to, um, to inf- how do you say that, infiltrate um, to get righteousness, to put righteousness into that depravity. That's what it means to be missions-minded. Being missions-minded means walking out the gospel in such a way that our, our, our words, our actions, everything about us is uh, pointing people to God. And I think as believers, it would behoove us to be more aware, more concerned with those who are spiritually Lost, And when I say that, it's not in there like, oh, I got something you don't. Well, we do have something that someone that doesn't have Jesus has. But it's not a, in a condemning, condescending kind of way. It's just we recognize that, wow, I have Christ in me, the hope of glory. And my life is forever changed by what I've experienced through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we just recognize that maybe this person, that person, our friend, our family member, whatever, doesn't have that. So we're not judging, we're not condemning and condescending. We just recognize that and we need to be more aware of that. Yes, we're aware of it when we have an outreach. And when we go on missions, we're going to be taking mission trips this summer. And we're aware that we will come in contact with lost people. We get that. But shouldn't we as believers, as Christ followers, be more aware of those who are far off from God every day? I mean, one way or the other, every day, mindful, aware, in tune, um, not just flippantly living life, but, but our mind is engaged in the world around us. And we recognize that it's not quite right. And people need Jesus Christ. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, you have the mind of Christ. And then one time he writes to the Ephesian church, it's in chapter 2 as well, and he, he tells the Ephesian church, put on the new nature, and that's one of the central themes in this, this teaching series, is the, is the new nature, the new self that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Put away the old things, put on the new things. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus Christ has, has provided for us a whole new nature. And Paul, the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians, put on the new nature. And he says, created after the likeness 
of God. And God is always concerned for those who are far away from him. Would you guys agree with that? And it seems like what was natural for Jesus to do while he was on this earth was to actually go looking for people who needed to be brought near to God. I was thinking about this this week. I think for us, for many of us, it kind of wigs us out when we think about engaging people in conversations about the Lord. I mean, it really does. I'll say that. I mean, I'm a pastor, and sometimes it's like, oh, gosh, the Lord's leading me, or I feel compelled, or whatever. It's like, oh, especially if it's a complete stranger. Amen? It's just a little uncomfortable, you know? But, I mean, overall, if we're moving forward in our, in our faith, if we're about advancing his kingdom and and, and, and bringing people into the, the family of God, we've got to get over all of those fears and all of those insecurities because what it does is it keeps us from reaching out. We just don't reach out. In fact, one of the things I said during Missions Month is that sharing the love of Jesus Christ is actually one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity. You guys remember when I said that? When we will get over ourself, we talked about selfless giving one week. We defined self if you weren't here, you can, you can pick it up on the, on the podcast. What is self? And am I self-less or am I self-fish? But if we will get over our self, and if we will share the love of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, things will happen. Is that true or is that not true? If we will share the love of Christ... In the power of the Holy Spirit, things will happen. In fact, we talked about those two things, love and power, as um, essentials for effective missional living. Because we talked about missional living quite a bit during Missions Month. Love and power, essential if we're going to live as missionaries, if we're going to live missionally. Love meaning the love of Christ, talking about that unconditional love. And as it relates to missional living, that love is seeing people and helping people. Seeing people, meaning that um, our heart goes out at the depravity of, of where they're at. Maybe the sin, maybe the lifestyle, maybe the, the, um, the lack of, of godliness in their life. No, I'm not, and listen to me close. Some of, you, some of you may be distracted right now. Listen. Seeing people in the love of Christ kind of way, which engages us not in a judgmental attitude, but a compassionate attitude attitude. When we can do that, we will be a literally a living, walking missionary. Seeing people having compassion on, on where they're at, and when we have compassion, we're moved to do something. We're moved to action. So it's, help, it's seeing people and it's helping people. Helping people just meaning that we will do whatever we can do within our ability to help them. And I don't know if you, some of you may remember this if you were here. Um, the Lord kind of gave me a, a definition of love, and I gave it to you. And if you're writing some things down this morning, write this down, because I think it is a good definition of love as it relates especially to missional living. Love is accepting people for who they are and helping them to become who they ought to be. That's love. It's a great definition of love, and love can be other kinds of things too, but this morning, put that in your hopper, you know, and you can shoot it later. (laughs) 
Oh, you paintball people out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's love, love. Anyway. <laughs> Seeing people for who they are, accepting them right where they're at, and doing what you can do to help them to become who they ought to be, who you know they can be, according to God's word, what God said you were, and he said they can and will be. Now, if any of you have engaged in that kind of um, activity in any kind of a way, if you've, you've, you've had that accepting heart and nature and you've brought someone in to your home or your family or your life and you've walked with them through that process of helping them to become who they ought to be, you know better than anyone else that it is impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's love and it's power. Without the Holy Spirit, we're basically up a, up a creek without an oar. <laughs> right? So love and its power. I think the problem is we hear this, we know it, we believe it, and we actually talk quite a bit about it. The problem is, is until these words become action, what we are doing is the very thing James in chapter 1, verse 22, says we're doing. We're being hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. And those of you who have been tracking with this teaching series, you know that that is the verse that we started out this teaching series with. James chapter 1, verse 22. And you're welcome to turn there. We're going to look at it. And we talked about how James is, is one of those writers in the word where he just kind of lays it down. He throws it down. He doesn't much care about um, if someone's offended with what he's saying. He speaks truth. He nails sin, unrighteousness. He, he exposes those things in our heart. James is one of those kinds of writers. And so you can read this verse in James, and you can say, wow, this is one of those verses. Because he says, prove yourself a doer of the word. Not just a hearer of the word. He says, prove, but prove yourself a doer of the word. And so it can definitely be one of those uh, reprimands. from. But, it, but we talked about, and I'm just going to say this briefly. We talked about how this is actually very encouraging. Because this is what really gets us bound up a lot of times is we get so guilty or so concerned with the fact that it's hard to live and be a doer of the word. But the encouraging thing about this is that this word prove actually before it means anything else means to become. It means to begin to be. So what he's saying is, man, it's okay if you don't have it all perfect, that you're not a perfect doer of God's word right now. What I'm telling you is but Begin to be. Work on becoming a doer of God's word. You guys remember when we talked about that? Now, if you were here, you remember that we also looked at this word doer. And I said that, I gave you a little bit of something and said that we're going to come back to it. And we're coming back to it today. Prove yourself to be a doer of God's word. And this word doer, I'm loving this and studying this because it's really, it's really um, helping me not to be so fearful and insecure about engaging people that don't know Jesus. This word doer, in the Greek, it means uh, one who can produce, a producer, one who can perform, uh, a maker. But the two definitions that I like the best is one, author. Begin to be an author of God's word. And the best is poet, which is the most common used use of this word because it comes from that, that Greek word um, whatever it is you know what I mean it's where we get the Greek it's where we get our word poet what is it it's up there poetes tease whatever 
This is where we get the word poet. He's saying, begin to be a poet. And that's one of the things I told you uh, a couple weeks ago. God calls us to poetically live out his word. Begin to be a poet of God's word. Poetically live out his word. And you're thinking, well, golly, this is James talking. I thought he was a hard nose. And all of a sudden he's talking about, I'm a poem. You're a poem. Roses are red. Violets are blue. You know? Well, it might seem like that, but there's other authors in the Word. For example, go to Ephesians 2 real quick. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, because he's not the only one aware of this reality. He's not the only one that uses this kind of a terminology. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We know that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to different churches. He wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. So these believers were called the Ephesian Believers, the Ephesians. This letter is written to the Ephesians. And one of the things he says, chapter 2, verse 10, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Interestingly enough, this word also comes from that root word that we get, poem. It's the word poema. And it means that which has been made And it speaks of a a work. And the most commonly used way of using this word is whenever they would talk about being used as the works of God. When they would talk about the works of God specifically as creator. This is the word that they would use. So when Paul says, you are a workmanship, he is talking about the creative work of God. The creative work. So it turns out, according to James and according to Paul, turns out you are a poem. And I am a poem. We're poems. I was thinking about this week how when I was a kid, I said poem. How many of you say poem like that? Poem. I don't know why I said it like that. It's East Texas, I guess. <laughs> What's a poem? So anyway, you and I are poems of God. We are creative pieces of art that God designed to point people to himself. Are you hearing me this morning? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works. That's why James says, so prove yourself to be just that. Begin to be what you were created to be. It's good to know that one of the things we were created to be is to be a poem and poetically point people to God. Amen? Now, if I'm going to be a poem or a poem, then I want to be a good poem. Some of you guys know what bad poetry is like. There's nothing worse than bad poetry. How many English majors do we have in here? Or whatever they call it. Justin and Rachel, yeah. You guys know what a bad poem is, don't you? Yeah, you've written a few. <laughs> You're the roses are red guy. Right? Roses are red. 
If I'm going to be a poem, if the word calls me a poem, then I want to be a good poem. I don't want to be one of those poems that somebody looks at, reads, and is like, this is so cheesy. That may sound funny, but we look at a lot of believers and we say, that is cheesy behavior. Maybe we don't use the word cheesy, but we say, that's, that's not God. That's not godly. That doesn't look like Jesus Christ. That doesn't look like the Bible. And we wonder why the world is the way it is. So if I'm going to be a poem, and if you're going to be a poem, I would think that we would want to be the best poem that we can be. Amen? Now, it's interesting that many of the attributes that make up a great poem are consistent with attributes that make up someone who has chosen missional living. And what I want to do is I want to look at some some attributes. What makes a good poem? And there's seven things I want to show you guys. And as we look at them, if I just if I just use the uh, the attributes and just told you what those are, you if you're spiritually minded at all, you'll be like, dude, I totally see that. I, man, I, I get that. What I'm going to do is just give you a couple of scriptures on each one that I immediately thought of whenever I, whenever I saw the attributes of a great poem. Okay, the first thing that makes a good poem is a poem must be well written with a concise and accurate use of language. The great advantage of poetry is that it can encapsulate ideas in the minimal of words. This is one of the main distinguishing features of poetry as compared to prose. And if you don't know the difference between poetry and and prose, I'll give you a basic definition. Prose is the ordinary form of the written language. It's the writing that you'll find in novels. Uh, It's written in in paragraph form with proper grammar, proper uh, punctuation. Uh, It has no real set form like poetry might. So you can look at poetry versus uh, prose like this. Poetry is extraordinary. It's creative. Prose doesn't overall have to be terribly creative. Maybe there's aspects of creativity, but it has no set form. Prose is considered ordinary. Poetry is considered extraordinary and creative. This is us. We are are distinguished from someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ, someone who is spiritually lost. Again, not in a, sorry, dude, you're just ordinary. Not in that kind of a way, but we are extraordinary. For one, we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are the workmanship of God created for good works in Christ Jesus. So we're also creative. It made me think of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, do you not know, this is, again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, do you guys not know that the unrighteous, I kind of interpreted that this week as the, the ordinary, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor greedy, drunkards, revelers, robbers, None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such 
were, some of you. He's saying some of you were these kind of people. There was a day where you were ordinary, but you're not anymore. Look what he says. But you were washed. You used to, some of you used to look like those things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. The core meaning of the word sanctified is set apart. You are now distinguished. You're not ordinary anymore. There's a form to your life. God is shaping you up differently. And that's part of who you are. To be a good poem. Amen? The next thing is, a good poem should be able to, I love this, a good poem should be able to lift the reader out of the ordinary and give glimpses of a more illumining reality. It's the first thing you think of. You're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And guess what? That's what people are looking for. People want to be pulled out of the ordinary. People are looking for something extraordinary. People are searching for spiritual things. They're looking for enlightenment. A lot of the lingo and some of the, some of the uh, other religions out there are all about being enlightened, illuminating their mind. Well, we are able to do that. We are the light of the world. We are able to lift the reader out of the ordinary and give them glimpses of something greater because we're a city on a hill. And even if we try to hide it, we just can't. Why? Something about a bushel. You know, I'm going to let it shine. Amen? Another thing that makes up a good poem or good poetry, good poetry is not an argument. Let me just emphasize that. Good poetry is not an argument, but convinces the reader through its own power. Now, when I say own power, I'm not talking about my own power or strength. Please don't interpret it that way. Remember all the things we've been saying. We have been filled, even right here. We're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We are full of the Holy Spirit. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We're no longer ruled by flesh. We're not slaves to that. We're slaves to righteousness, and the Holy Spirit is working in us. So we don't have to argue. We just convince. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it made me think of Jude 1. I don't know if you're familiar with Jude. It's a, it's a small book in the New Testament. But Jude 1, verse 20 says, But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith, he says, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and convince some. Convince some who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. And we just kind of, we do that. Our lives should just exude that. Why? Because I'm a living, active, breathing poem of God. And I'm not ashamed of it. It's like Paul says in in Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why do I go forward with it? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. Uh, And and my very um, life exudes that. It's able to lift them out of the ordinary. 
And I'm certainly not going to hide it under a bushel. I'm not ashamed of it. Amen? That's one of the qualities, one of the characteristics, attributes of a great poem. And it just so happens to be one of the attributes of someone who chooses a life of missional living, living as a missionary into the community. Another one is a good poem should engage the heart of the reader and it should be more than mere intellectual cleverness. If you're familiar with scripture on any level, maybe it'll take you straight to something Paul said one time. He said, my message and my preaching, my poem, is not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. A good poem should engage the heart of the reader, and it should be more than just mere intellectual cleverness. But, but um, the Spirit operating in power. More than just persuasive words. You tracking with me? That's us. Part of us being a good poem, living out God's word poetically, is depending upon the power of God. You can prepare what you're going to say all day long, but at the end of the day, if it is not backed up with the wind of the Spirit behind that sail, it accomplishes very little. That's what Paul's trying to say right here. Another one is, good poetry can offer hope from seemingly painful experiences. Think about poetry. Some of you really like poetry. Some of you don't care for it. But one of the things poetry can do is um, offer hope from seemingly painful experiences. I wrote down that many great poets deal with our fear of death. A lot of poets deal with that. The fear of death and kind of offers alternative views to the natural pessimism that can pervade men. One of the things that we are as a living poem are people who are filled with Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's one of the things that comes out of us naturally as a living poem is the hope that can pull people out of that funk. Amen? We can offer hope from seemingly painful experiences. And I say seemingly because just because we have the hope of Christ in us doesn't mean we don't go through painful situations. One of the things that can engage the reader in this life of poetry is that I handle stuff a lot different than the world does. Of course I do. I'm distinguished from that. I have something in me that is able to rejoice in all things, even suffering. And there's something about our ability to do that. To remain joyful, positive, not pessimistic. There's something about that that draws people in. Many people love negative. They thrive on contention. It's never a good thing. Don't thrive on contention. Don't thrive on the negative. Because that is, if that's the seeds that you're going to sow, that will be what you reap. Amen? Just kind of a side note there. Another good thing uh, is that poetry is from the heart, or at least it should be. (laughs) Poetry is from the heart. Good poetry can never be faked. You tracking with me? Good poetry 
can never be fake. It made me think of Acts chapter 2. This is when the early church really uh, exploded and, and the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 believers just like that. There's moving forward with, with all these great things and, and it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. It says everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as they had need, which is already different. People are probably like, what is up with this? That's a good poem. And then it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their home, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In other words, they weren't faking it. Something was happening, and this is real. It was probably the most real thing that the people in that time had seen in a long time. Glad and sincere heart. Maybe some people in this room have tried to fake it for a long time. But you even know for yourself, faking it doesn't work. Faking it It not being sincere doesn't change things. Why? Because you're still miserable. Peace still isn't abounding. You can fake it all day, but joy's not there. But when it is sincere, when it's real, and remember what James said, hey, listen, it takes time to see it that way. It takes time for that change. It may take you a while before it really becomes the depth of your heart, seriously sincere. But at least begin to be. Begin walking down that way. I want to encourage you with that. Sometimes it is hard for us to have a sincere heart in that, especially if we're working through a lot of flesh stuff. But it can't be faked. The last one is this. Good poetry is poetry that we can feel an identification with. Something that really draws us in, really connects us to that piece of work is when we can identify with it. It's like, oh man, that was really good. Totally get what the author's saying, or I I totally identify with that. Something that we can feel an identification with. In other words, there doesn't seem to be a separation between the poet and the reader. Now don't misunderstand me. There is a spiritual difference between someone who does not know Jesus Christ, ordinary, in us who have been redeemed, saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and put on a whole other road in life. There's a difference. But we don't revel in that difference. Oh, we're separated. We're separated. Because when we do that, people can't identify us with us. We have a message, but our life and our, our actions and our, our demeanor is basically saying, but you're just probably not going to get there because you're just a lot different than I am. Part of being a, a, a poet of God's word is being able to, to be accepting and loving, forgiving, ministry of reconciliation. We're separate, but our life is to help reconcile. Yes, we're, we're different, we're distinguished, but missional living is all about getting them to a place where we're no longer separate. We're part of the same family. 
want you to turn real quick, and I want you to see this in your Bible. Just 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love chapter. I think it's best described right here. Good poetry is poetry that we can identify with. There does not seem to be a separation between poet and reader. And here's how this can happen. If you want a guideline, man, I know I've done that. I know I've come across as arrogant, cocky, judgmental, know-it-all, better than. Most of us have exuded that and most of us have experienced that from other believers. Raise your hand if that's true. It's true, definitely true. If, if you ever want to have a guideline, something that you can put your life up against and see how it's shaping up, it's, it's the love chapter. It's what love is. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, basically verses 4 through 8. says, love is patient. Remember, these are things that will help you be a good poem. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag and boast. It's not arrogant. Love is not rude. Let me pause. Let me just say again. This, this is who we are as we're walking and living life and we come, and come in contact with people. Guess what? You're not rude. You don't wig out and freak out and get frustrated when the line's a little longer than you wanted it to be. You don't honk when somebody's not going quite as fast as they need to be. You show grace. It's all right. Happened to me one time. Listen, Christians are so rude. They're rude. Rude. (laughs) Love is not rude. The poet of God's word is not rude. It's not arrogant. Does not seek its own. In other words, it's selfless. It's not easily angered. Love doesn't keep record of wrong. Love does not delight in unrighteousness. We don't delight in the evil stuff. We don't, we don't love it when someone does something wrong, when someone fails. And go tell everybody else, did you hear what they did? I knew that, I knew that would happen. I knew it. I could just smell it on them. That's not love. You think that is going to pull someone out of the ordinary? Never, ever. Doesn't delight in unrighteousness. Remember what we said at the beginning. We're called to introduce righteousness into the depravity. Not to be glad that unrighteousness is happening. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And he kind of summed it up. Paul's like, he's kind of a bottom line kind of a guy. I think it's why I like him. He said, you know what? Bottom line, love never fails. And we can think, oh, I can never measure up to that. Listen, you know, James said it. I'm not saying you have to be perfect in it right now. Just begin to be. 
a poet of God's word.